All right, if you would, uh, grab your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 8. As uh, you guys already know by now, today is a baptism service. We're going to be uh, baptizing two sisters today, Jackie Hartman and Patty Baring. And uh, yeah, it's, it's always a blessing. And so uh, that's, that's the reason for uh, being in Acts chapter 8 today. This is just a classic, classic text on baptism. Uh, really, you know, what we see in this passage of Scripture is the full progression of a man that is seeking God. God is simultaneously seeking him. He comes into a full knowledge of Jesus Christ from the Scriptures, thanks to a, a brother named Philip, who we'll learn about today, and then he is baptized at the end. It's just uh, such a sweet text of Scripture. I'm very excited to share it. And so... Um, God places this guy, Philip. Does anybody know who Philip is? Where, have we seen Philip already in the book of Acts at this point? A little Bible trivia here. Yes, we have. Yes, we have. Acts chapter 6, when they selected, I think, seven men full of the Spirit and good reputation to assist the practical and physical needs of the church alongside the apostles. Stephen was one of those guys, you may remember, and we'll talk a little bit about him. But uh, Philip was also one of those guys, but we also know him to be this mighty evangelist and baptizer in uh, our text today. And so God places Philip in the path of this man who is seeking God, though he has many questions, he's confused, he's trying to figure it out. But God is at the same time pursuing him and drawing him into a, a complete and total relationship with Jesus. So I've kind of titled this uh, something like fully immersed, you know, kind of going all in, all into the Christian faith. Because in some ways, I think that's what baptism represents, going all in, baby. Amen? And uh, holding nothing back. And so, in my mind, that's kind of what we see happen in this text today. This, uh, this guy, this Ethiopian, uh, he, he goes all the way in with Christ. And so, baptism, he's baptized. Uh, I suppose we could call this the baptized life. And what is that word exactly? Well, it comes from the Greek word baptizo, and it's transliterated into baptism, the actual translation of the word baptizo would be dunked or immersed, right? But instead of translating it, they just transliterated it to baptize. And so that's the word, and that's where we get it. And we use the word baptism in a number of different ways, right? Um, I remember Pastor Bill, uh, he used to say to me as I was getting into ministry and it was starting to get hard, it was getting rough and tough, he'd say, you're getting baptized now. Right, you're being baptized into ministry. You know, you kind of have that that honeymoon phase, but uh, stuff the sparks start flying sooner or later. And we understand that language. We use that. You're being fully immersed now. You're all the way in. And uh, you know, Jesus actually used this word in that context. Uh, John and his brother James came to Jesus, and they wanted to sit at his right hand and left hand. Remember that? And um, Jesus said this to them in Mark 10:38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? So we see Jesus even use that same kind of language, right? And so um, 
I, that's why I, I really appreciate that, that aspect of baptism, going all the way in. And that's really what it is. It's a public profession that uh, we're going all the way with Jesus. No turning back. This world has nothing for me. Amen? I'm following the King. And so that's what we see in our text. I believe that's what God wants for us. I know that's what we want for ourselves as believers. I'm sure that all of us often pray that. And I know that's what we want to see for other people as well. So, fully immersed, the baptized life, going all in for Jesus. So, as we uh, approach our text, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. That's where the story begins. And then we're going to look at verses 26 through 38. So, there's a little bit of a, of a, a breakaway partway through the chapter where someone else becomes the prominent uh, feature of the story, and then it goes back. So that's how we're going to approach this chapter today. And if you would, allow me to say a prayer before we go any further. Father, we love you, and I'm so grateful already that Christ has been magnified here today through song. Thank you that your spirit is moving in our hearts and our minds as your word is going forth. Thank you that your word is powerful, it's living, it's sharp. Please, as the psalmist cried out, would you open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things in your law. And I pray that you would be exalted through the teaching and the preaching of the scriptures here. And I pray that our hearts would be ministered to and that we would be comforted and strengthened and challenged by the word of God today. Thank you for the baptisms that will be happening here. Be exalted even in that, Jesus. We praise you, we worship you, and we thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. All right, well, as we approach our text, several points that I want to make here. And uh, the first thing that we see as this chapter opens is that God uses a great persecution to move Philip to another location, to Samaria. God uses a great persecution to move his servant from one place to another. And so I guess if you want to think about this applicationally, you know, in our own lives, we see that God can use great difficulty to stir our hearts and to move us, right? Maybe to stir us out of a place of uh, complacency or laziness even, or even maybe stubbornness. God has many different ways and means that He can use to move us along. And I thank God for that, though I don't always like the means that God uses. His means are effective. And so, you know, I've got to give Him that. So with that, let's look at uh, Acts 8, verse 1. Now let me just say this. It picks up in a very awkward place. Just before this, in chapter 7, we saw that Stephen was uh, stoned to death with rocks. And um, then he, he dies, and then the story switches immediately into uh, chapter 8, verse 1. And we're told, if you look there in your Bible, that uh, now Saul was consenting to his death. So we're told there was a, a young man by the name of Saul who was there holding the coats of the people who, were, uh, who had stoned Stephen, and he was pleased by this. He was consenting to their death. And then it goes on, it says, And at that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial, and they made great lamentation over him. And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, 
entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now, we know that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave some instructions to his disciples. He said, you go, therefore, right? Go out making disciples to the ends of the earth. The only problem is the Christians didn't do that. They stayed right there in Jerusalem. They were very localized in that one location. And they were, they were no doubt, spreading the gospel there, and people were coming to faith in Christ, and amazing things were happening, but they weren't really going out. And we see that through this persecution, persecution hits the church, and it scatters them throughout the regions. That's an interesting word here for scattered. There are different words in Greek that are used that translate scatter, and one of those words would specifically be something like scattering ashes, and the ashes, they just they disappear, they, they, uh, they're gone, but then there's a, a word that's specific for scattering seed, scattering seed that, uh, that would produce fruit, and that's the word here. So as these Christians are being scattered because of persecution, as they go out, there will be much fruit that will happen as a result of it as they go out with the gospel message. And so by this persecution, they were forced to go out and do the very thing that God had commanded them to do in the first place. God can use hardship to advance his mission. In fact, he does frequently use difficulty to advance his mission. Oftentimes, people get content, they get settled, they get stuck even, and God can shake things up. Uh, one commentator, he says this, The resulting good of the spread of the gospel leads some to see this persecution as being the will of God. God can and will use pressing circumstances to guide us into His will. Sometimes we have to be shaken out of our comfortable state before we do what God wants us to do. Sometimes we got to get shook. God has to do a little shaking, right? And so not only does God move us through hardship, God makes us through hardship. And I've been talking about this quite a bit over the last couple months as we've talked about testing and trials and so on and so forth. We are made in the valley. That is where we are made, where we are forged. We love the mountaintop experiences, don't we? Let's just be real. As Christians, we want to we be in that place where we're just always feeling amazing. We are on fire. It is all good. But it's just not always that way, if we're honest. A lot of the times, it's not that way. Because it is through difficulty and hardship that God sanctifies us and makes us more into the image of His own Son, right? Refined in the fire. We don't like it, and we oftentimes pray against the very thing that God is using in our lives. And I, I know I'm guilty of that. And this is a hard thing to really keep in mind and to practice. But when you're in the midst of a very difficult situation, something that's even crushing maybe, to really try to take a step back and appreciate it, to actually count it all joy, to actually let God have His work in my life instead of trying to get out from underneath it or pray it away or escape it, that is easier said than done, right? God uses all kinds of things. God can use tragedies. He does. God uses our own mistakes. He uses our own failures even for our own good. That's a promise unique to the Christian, that God is able to work all things together for good. God is able to work all things together for good, even our own failures and shortcomings. And I 
Praise God for that. That's a place of comfort for the Christian. Amen? It's a great comfort to me and to us. God can use difficulty to break through complacency and stubbornness. You know, I wouldn't be who I am. I wouldn't be where I am. I wouldn't have the life that I have today, which I praise God for daily, if it weren't for some of the worst tragedies that I've had to go through in in life, you know. And in those moments, I couldn't see any good. All I could see was bad. All I could see was darkness, hopelessness, no way forward, this is it, it's over. Uh, But I look now, hindsight, after, you know, you get some years behind you and you can begin to put it in perspective and see what God was doing all along, and it's amazing. You know, having the faith in the moment, having faith in the moment in the midst of the difficulty to believe that God is doing something good, good in us, good for us, uh, that's hard, but that is what God is doing. He's committed to that. He's committed to our good. He's committed to his own glory, to advancing his own plan, and his plan is good, always. Amen? And so God uses these kinds of things, and I praise him for it. Well, uh, look with me at verse 5. It continues. This is after the persecution. It says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame, and were healed. And there was great joy in the city. All right, so Philip was one of those who was forced to scatter because of persecution, and now we're told that he went to Samaria. Now remember with me, by this point in Israel's history, Israel as a whole was basically three regions, three major uh, regions. So in the southernmost part of the country was Judea. Okay, that's where Jerusalem, the capital city, the temple worship, all the the elite religious people, that's where they were. Then just north of that, in the central part of of um, of the country, you had Samaria. And then right above that, in the northernmost part, you had Galilee, which is where Jesus spent the majority of his ministry. It was very rural. It was where all them country folks was at. And, uh, you know, I can understand why Jesus would want to kick it there. And it's a very beautiful country. Um, but that middle portion of the country, Samaria, that was a place where Jews did not want to go. The Samaritans were distinctly different from the Jews. They were uh, part Jewish uh, but they were also Gentiles. This goes back to the, the captivity that happened, the Babylonian captivity, Daniel, all of that right there. People were taken out of the land. Uh, foreigners came in. They intermarried. And then the Samaritans uh, came about as a result of that intermingling. Then the Jews came back from captivity. And there was just this great hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so this would be kind of an unusual place even for Philip to go. And if you recall, this is where Jesus went. Remember the woman at the well? John chapter 4, she was a Samaritan woman. And so here's Philip, and he's preaching Christ in an unlikely place. And uh, what's more is is that God was doing extraordinary work there, and a multitude of people, they were responding favorably. You'll recall that they had rejected Jesus at one point. And you remember what John wanted to do? 
John said, hey, you, you want me to call fire down out of heaven and just scorch all of them? And so uh, that's these people. But now, man, they are, they're responding to the gospel message. They heeded the things that were spoken by Philip. They were responding to the gospel call. We're told that great healings were taking place. It said, uh, I like how the NIV translates it. It says here that um, they were crying with a loud voice as unclean spirits were coming out. The NIV translates it, they were, there were shrieks. And I think that kind of gives us a little bit more, uh, you know, that's when we think of demons coming out, being cast out. It's these loud, awful shrieking. I mean, it was gnarly. And so that's what was happening. I mean, there was a real excitement in this place. Amazing things were happening. There was this influx of people that were coming in because they were being driven out of Jerusalem because of all the persecution, and now they're preaching this crazy, amazing message, and there are healings, and uh, demons being cast out, and people are responding to the preaching of Christ. Just a real excitement in the air. But then God does something rather odd, it would seem. He calls Philip out of there, and he tells Philip to go to a desolate place. He calls Philip out of the place where all the excitement is happening and sends him to a place where there is nothing. It's desert land. It's, you know, wasteland. And so that brings us to uh, the next point. God calls Philip to leave Samaria and go to a deserted place. I would say God knows what he is doing even though we might not understand or even agree. God knows what he's doing even though we might not understand or even agree with it. That's a lengthy point for the note taker. Sorry about that. So look at verse 26 with me. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So Philip was told to go south, and uh, we're told that this is a desert land. I think that's significant. I think that that little detail was included in there just to make the very point. He's going from a place where it's popping to a place where there is nothing. And I'm sure he's probably wondering, Lord, why? Don't you see all the awesome things that are happening here? Samaria was the place to be. It's where the action was. This doesn't make much sense to us on a human level. I'm sure it made no sense to Philip as he was in the midst of a revival. But God was leading Philip to someone in particular. God was leading him to a particular place for a particular person. Just one person. There's one person out here we're going to see that he happens across by God's divine providence. And what I love about this is that it reminds us that God cares about the one. Amen? God values the one. And this is totally consistent. Jesus talked about this. The good shepherd leaves the 99 sheep to find the one, Luke 15, right? We're familiar with that story. And so there's this one person out here in the middle of nowhere that is seeking after God, and God providentially calls Philip to this desolate place to reach this one person. Now, at the same time, God is doing something that will have vast effects because he's going to go back down from where he came and the gospel is going to explode there uh, undoubtedly because of this one man who God 
was reaching. And so, again, there's kind of like this dual thing here. God is doing something that seems odd. It seems questionable. God is doing something that seems, uh, well, he's doing something that shows us that he, he cares just as much about the one as he does the large group, right? And then at the same time, God is doing something that's going to have astronomical fruit and effect, and we just don't even know that. And we don't know that. We don't in our own lives. If we, if we knew, you know, oftentimes when we're serving the Lord, we're, we're just not aware of the fruit, what God's actually doing. I think one day we'll get a glimpse of that in heaven, and God will show us how He used us in this life, and I think that we're going to be blown away, you know. Uh, but here in this life, so often we just don't get to see it, and it can be downright discouraging sometimes. But recognizing that God may, it may seem that God's doing something that's not all that significant in our lives, but we can't even begin to know how that ripples out and the kind of effects that it has as God reaches other people. Amen? So God knows what He's doing. Amen to that, right? Can we agree on that? God is good. He's wise. He's powerful. His ways are always good. We may not understand. We don't need to. And we may not even agree, but we'll never, ever, ever regret obeying God. And that brings us to the next point here. God knows more than us, and we will never regret obeying Him. God knows more than us, and we will never, ever regret obeying Him. Look at verse 27. So he arose and went. I love that. God told him to go to this place that is a desert, and he arose and he went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of, her, of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. That's interesting language, overtake this chariot. I wonder what that looked like. Did he just like bust the door open and like jump in there and like freak the guy out or what? But it's an interesting, uh, interesting language there. So, in obedience, Philip goes. As I said, you don't always understand or even agree, but you'll never regret. And it says, Behold. Behold, I love that, you know. Behold, there was a man of Ethiopia. What do you know? Would you look at that? Would you look at it? Nobody got that reference. That's okay. That is all good. A few people got it. All right. So we're told that there is this Ethiopian eunuch here who serves under Candace the queen. Now this Ethiopia, this was a very large kingdom south of Egypt. And Candace is, uh, this is likely not her first name. It, it would, according to some commentators, it would probably be like a title, like Pharaoh or Caesar, something like that. And uh, a eunuch, this is a government official, uh, someone who was, their life was dedicated or devoted to. Um, serving the, the one who was in charge as a very close and personal uh, servant or assistant. They would never, ever marry or have children. 
That's as much as I'm going to say about that. If you know what a eunuch is, okay. If you don't, I'll just you know, Google it later. Uh, but at any rate, this particular guy is in charge of all of her treasury. So he's kind of a big deal. This would have been a man of great nobility. And so he had connections. He was a high roller. He came from a vast kingdom, and he was serving someone who was in tremendous power, and he was in charge of all the treasury. That's serious. Yet at the same time, here he is seeking after the living God. He came to Jerusalem to worship. He didn't have a full understanding of God and who God was, but he was seeking. And at the same time, God was seeking him. I love that. And really, that's the promise of Jeremiah 29, 13. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with your heart. I love that. You, you will seek me and you will find me when you search with your heart, with your whole heart. Isn't that good? I think you can just marinate on that a little bit. You know, when we seek God with our heart, with our whole heart, He will be found. He will be found. The Spirit of God was actively pursuing this man and drawing him. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. That's another good one. I love that. The nearness of God. Our God is near to the brokenhearted, near to the hurting. He is near to those who are seeking after Him. Frankly, He's near to us even when we're doubting, even when we're struggling, even when we are failing and falling short. He's still near to us, amen, because He's faithful. It's the faithfulness of God. It's not our faithfulness. It's His faithfulness. It's not our great love. It's His great love, ultimately, and so that is our hope, that is our confidence, that's what we see happening right here in our text with this Ethiopian man. And I love that the Spirit is placing someone in his path. I think we as Christians can all attest to this. God has put people in our lives, amen? God has put special people in our lives who have encouraged us, challenged us, rebuked us when we needed it, instructed us, and I thank God. That is truly a kindness from God. That is a true grace. I, I look back to my life before I was a believer, when I was just all out, out there in that mess, and I just had interesting moments where believers would just come into my path and try to invite me, share the Lord with me, invite me to church, and at the time I had mixed emotions about it. You know, there were, I had different reactions to it even. But looking back now, I see so clearly that was God in His kindness drawing me, reaching out to me graciously all along. And then as a believer in different stages of my life, even to this very day, God has put so many wonderful brothers and sisters in my life who have impacted me and encouraged me and challenged me and continue to do that even to this very hour, Right? And so that is a gift of God. He puts people in our lives. And what's cool is He puts us in people's lives. God uses us in other people's lives. So we can all speak to the fact that God has put people in our lives. And, you know, that, that should then become our hope for us. God used me in someone else's life the way this person has been used in my life. And that's the way that this thing works. It's successive generations of discipleship happening there. God uses people in our lives, He uses us in other people's lives, and then He'll use them in other people's lives, and that's what God does. It's a kindness of God as He is seeking people. All right, well, this brings us to the next point, number four. 
Christ is now fully revealed to this nobleman, this, this uh, Ethiopian man, from the Scriptures, and that's significant. It is from the Word of God. And so, I would say, application here, God's intention is for us to fully understand and know Christ. That's God's intention for us as a believer, is for us to come to a full knowledge. You know, like when I, when I first began walking with Jesus, I mean, we don't know much. You know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's a profound truth, honestly, but sometimes that's all we know. God is Dada, right? And that, that's, just, that's just kind of where we're at. But He wants to take us so much farther than that. So let's look at this, verse 30. So Philip ran to him. Philip ran to him. He sees this chariot, and he, he runs to this guy. It's a chariot. We would call it a buggy in the south. You might not know that. It's some weird stuff we do. A grocery cart... Uh, that's not a grocery cart. You might not know this. It's a buggy. And so, uh, water hose, it's a hose pipe. Okay? It's redundant, but it is what it is. And so, anyways, Philip seen this buggy, and he ran up on the guy. And uh, he heard him in the, in the chariot reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? I love this. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and to sit with him. And so Philip ran. Philip got his marching orders from the Lord and he got after it. He got his marching orders from God and he went for it. He didn't hesitate. No reluctance here. And then Philip says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? Now, this is an important question. You know, just on a very simple, practical note, do we understand what we're dealing with, what we're reading? We don't read the Bible just to check off our, our daily religious duties box. No, we're, we are reading to understand the God of the Bible. We are reading to understand the truth, the deep and lofty truths of the Bible, to grow in our understanding uh, and appreciation of the God of the Bible, of Jesus Christ, the Son of the Holy Spirit, to grow in love, to grow in obedience, to grow in service. So reading for comprehension, reading for a deeper understanding, a full understanding of God's truth. And so Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And, uh, you know, people don't always understand People don't always understand. The Bible is, it can be hard to understand sometimes. Certain things are very simple, and other things are, uh, can be confusing and challenging. Some things are easy to understand, but hard to accept, and it's just all across the board. And so, that's part of the Christian life, is just growing in our understanding of these things. It's okay if we don't understand all these things. No one is ever going to understand all of God's truth and word in this life. I think we'll spend eternity growing in those things, you know. There's this verse in Deuteronomy that says that the secret things belong to the Lord, but that which has been revealed is for us and for our children, something like that. And so there are just things that we're not going to understand in this life. It hasn't been revealed to us. But those things that have, we spend our life growing in our understanding, seeking a deeper understanding of these things. We need help, and the goal is to be a help to, the, to others to help understand. You know, I, I remember I used to um, 
dabble around in uh, different kinds of martial arts and stuff like that when I was younger. And there would be this common thing that would happen is you would have, especially younger students in there, they, don't, they didn't understand, they didn't know uh, a particular move or whatever it was, and they would get so mad at themselves, and they would just want to, like, quit. And the instructor would say, he said something that was so interesting to me. He was like, you're here to learn. Of course you don't know this stuff. That's why you're here, and I'm here to teach you. So don't, like, expect that because you don't know this or can't do it yet that there's something, like, wrong with you or that you need to flip out about it. I'm here to teach, you're here to learn, and, and that's all part of it. So we have to kind of give ourselves the grace to realize we don't have it all figured out. We don't have to. We never will. But again, it's part of our journey, and God's goal even for us is to take us deeper and to fully understand the things of Christ. Amen? And so um, I love the humility of this guy. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I unless someone guides me? I think that's a beautiful thing. Um, you know, there is a sense in which we don't need other people. We have the Bible, we have the Holy Spirit, and God is capable of leading us into truth. But God has gifted us with brothers and sisters who know more than us, who have walked this thing out longer than we have, godly men and women who have written many glorious things about God's truth. And so we're able, we're able to see over mountains because we stand on the shoulders of giants who have gone before us. And some people, man, they, they just refuse. They're like, I will never read a commentary. I will not listen to other pastors. I will not. And I, I just cannot understand that way of thinking uh, because God has given us such gifted men and women of God who, uh, who are able really to take us into deeper places in the Word of God, and I love this guy's response is, I need help. I need someone to guide me into this. And Philip was all too eager to do just that. And so he enters into the chariot with the guy, and we see evangelism and discipleship happening all at once here. And so look at verse 32. Well, it tells us the place in the Scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Now, this would be a quotation from Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. And as the scroll that he's probably reading from doesn't have those chapter and verse markers, and so he's just probably picking up at a random spot in Isaiah. You know, I don't know, it could be, uh, I don't even exactly know, but by God's providence, that's what he's reading when Philip comes up to the cart. And of course, I could understand why he would be like lost on that. That's, that would be confusing. But what we have here in Isaiah 53 is one of the most graphic prophetic depictions of the suffering Christ, of what Christ, God's anointed one, would come and do for his people. By his wounds, we would be healed, right? And so it's, it's that text. It's, it's a glorious text of Scripture. And it speaks of how Christ was suffering the place of guilty sinners. Now, this particular verse that Philip was reading speaks of how Jesus would do this willingly and without a fight. 
Uh, Jesus was not a victim. He wasn't, he wasn't dragged, kicking and screaming to the cross. This was the very reason that he came. He came for this very reason. For the, his, his, this was his hour, he would often say. You know, my hour has not yet come. And then he finally says, my hour has come. And we actually see that. Jesus says that. Um, John 12, 27, he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And so Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Jesus is the one that is foretold in Isaiah 53, the one who would come and would suffer for the sins of the lost, and that he would do so willingly, that he would do so willingly. He would not fight against it. He was a man on a mission he knew why he came. That is our great Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the suffering servant. He is God's own sacrifice for the sins of the world. And that's really the gospel message. That's the, the heart of the gospel, that God is in the world saving sinners. And we are all sinners in need of a great Savior, point blank, right? And so it all boils down to what have we done with God's gift because we all are in desperate need of it. The Bible teaches that we have all fallen short of God's glorious standard. God's standard is perfection and none of us meet that. We never have, we never will. Our standard is, well, as long as I'm doing better than that person over there. You know, like if you're running from a, a bear and you're in a, in a group of people, you just have to be able to run a little bit faster than the next guy, uh, and you'll be okay. And that, a lot of people treat salvation like that. Well, I'm just a little bit better than this guy over here, and so in my book, I'm good. But that's not how God judges. God says, my standard is what it is. My standard is perfection. And he's perfectly holy and good and righteous, so he can do no other. He can do no other. He is a totally just judge. And so God, in His grace and His love and His mercy, He made a way for our sins to be placed upon another and for another to take our penalty, Jesus Christ, His Son, His beloved Son. Jesus lived a life that we could not live. He lived a life of perfect obedience in every way conceivable to God's holy law, tempted in all ways, yet He never sinned never sinned. And so that is uh, his perfect righteousness. But then, even though such was the case, he died a sinner's death, a criminal's death. And there on the cross on Calvary's tree, God poured his own wrath out on his, his beloved son, the wrath that we all justly deserved was poured out on his son Jesus. And Jesus, he bore the wrath of Almighty God there on the cross. And then he died and he rose again from the grave three days later, victorious over sin and death. And if we believe in him, if we call upon his name, if we confess with our mouths, believing in our hearts that Jesus is the Lord, that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved, Paul says. We will have new life, life eternal. That's the good news. And that, that, that was spoken of all throughout the Old Testament. And that is what is being revealed to this man right here. And so in verse 34, the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does this prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth, beginning at the Scriptures, and he preached Jesus to him. 
And so the man was obviously, understandably inquisitive about who this prophecy was speaking of. Philip had the answer. He demonstrated from the Scriptures that it was speaking of Jesus. And the whole of the Scriptures point to Christ. The Bible is God's story of redemption. That's simply what the Bible is. From cover to cover, it is a story of God's redemption for a lost and dying world, of redemption that would be accomplished in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus said that the whole of the Scriptures testify of Him. They speak of Him and His saving work as He redeems fallen humanity back to God and brings us back to a place of right relationship with our Creator. Even redeeming the whole world, there will be a new heaven and a new earth when it's all said and done. So complete and total redemption. Jesus is the point of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And so that's what's going on here. That's why Philip is preaching Christ to him from the Word of God. That's why we have a Christ-centered hermeneutic in our preaching and teaching here. We always find Christ in the text. He's there. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's obvious, like right here, but sometimes it's not so obvious. But Christ is there. He's not literally in every word or on every single page, but somehow, some way, God has woven the reality of His divine mission and His Son into the pages of Holy Scripture from cover to cover. And so we are looking for the Christ of the Scriptures. Well, man, this nobleman, he's fired up. He's excited. It's making sense to him. God's putting someone in his path who can explain these things. No doubt the Holy Spirit is just, is just opening his eyes and his heart to these, these amazing realities and truths, and he's excited. And so, you know what his first response to this is? He wants to be baptized. That's amazing to me. And so that, that tells me that obviously as, as Philip is walking him through all of these things and explaining who Christ is and why Christ came, undoubtedly built into that is the call to be baptized. Because the guy instantly is like, I want to be baptized. And so I would say... Here we have God's desire for the Christian as to fully identify with the Savior. That's God's desire, is that we would fully identify with the Savior. So look with me at verse 36. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? So as I said, Philip's message undoubtedly involved belief in Christ, repentance from sin, and baptism, believer's baptism. That was the command of Christ and the common message from the apostles to repent, to believe, to be baptized. And as they traveled along, Philip and the eunuch, from wherever they're located, there was, there was a body of water nearby. And the man asked if there was anything at this point that would stop him from being baptized. What else must I do? What must I do in order to be baptized? So what's the process here, you know, for the Christian? Because this can be a confusing thing. There are a lot of believers, Christian believers, who still aren't even baptized. For one reason or another, I don't know what it is, but people are so very hesitant to get baptized. And so this guy is like, what is it that would stop me from being baptized at this point? And so I love his heart. He wanted all that Christ had for him, and he didn't want to settle for anything less. That's a great prayer. God, I want everything that you have for me, and nothing less will do. 
Amen? And so here's Philip's response. Now we're getting really into the heart of the matter as we kind of are entering into the baptism portion of the text and the service. Philip said, if you believe with all of your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So belief, that's the prerequisite. Isn't that what Jesus always said? You have to believe. They said, what are the works that we need to do to do the, the works of God? And Jesus said, you got to believe. you got to believe in the one whom God sent. Believe in his Son, Jesus Christ. And so there it is. There's the prerequisite. You must believe with all your heart. So what is it exactly that we are to believe? That Jesus is the Son of God. Now, that's believing in the identity of Jesus. That is believing that Jesus is who he said he was, right? And so really, the idea of belief here, it's kind of a multifaceted thing. And I think, again, initially in the beginning, we don't even fully understand all of these things. I know that I, I didn't, and in time, these things become much more clear and real to us. But I think the simple idea here is believing that, you know, I am who God says I am, and that is I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. That's what it means to confess your sins. Some people really think that they have to go back and remember all the sins that they've committed and confess every one of them individually. Man, that's, that is not good news. That is bad news, and we can never do it. I probably couldn't even remember all the sins from yesterday, you know, and so if we're honest with ourselves, and so it simply means to acknowledge the reality. Yes, I am a sinner. I have fallen short of God's glorious standard, and I do need a Savior. I need God's help. And then confessing that Jesus is the Savior. He is the Son of God. He really did come uh, to, to, to save a lost and dying world. He really is the good shepherd. He really is the, the, the physician, the good doctor, right? And so salvation is only in Him. And so believing in Jesus Christ and um, to confess Christ, you know, from the heart, to believe and to confess. And so Paul puts it this way. Let's, let's kind of look at how Paul describes this for a moment. Because we have the whole of the Scriptures to go off of, and so that gives us a richer understanding of what we're talking about here. So this is what it says, and I've already alluded to this, in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. We're saved from God's wrath. We're saved from the bondage of our own sin. We're saved from, really, Satan himself and the slavery that we were bound up in, the satanic blindness that we were in, we are totally redeemed, bought out of that, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We are saved. Verse 10, it says, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so it has to be from the heart. It has to be genuine and sincere. It can't just be some mechanical thing. I walked the aisle, I prayed a prayer, I recited some words that the pastor told me to recite, I'm good. No, it has to be genuine from the heart. It has to be a heartfelt sincerity to want to know God and walk with God and receive God's forgiveness and love, right? And then the promise is, is that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Glorious news, whoever. 
Now, Paul is actually pulling this from Deuteronomy. We, we may not even realize that, but this is, uh, as you look at Romans 10 there in the context, Paul quotes some verses uh, that helps us to, to see that this comes from Deuteronomy. And I love the way Deuteronomy puts this. So let me read that to you. Deuteronomy verse, uh, chapter 30, verse 11. It says, For this commandment, which I command you today, it is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. It's as simple as believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. The truth of God, the reality of God, it's not some mysterious thing that one has to travel to space to find and bring back or cross the sea to, to, to get a hold of and bring back. It's as close as believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. The salvation of God is that close. Amen? He goes on in verse 19, I call heaven and earth as witness today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. I love this, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. Mm, that is good. That is sweet. And it's as simple as believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. So choose life. Choose life. Blessing and cursing, life and death is set before us. Choose life. Amen? We'll look at verse 38. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. In obedience to the Lord's command, the man was baptized that day. So what exactly is baptism? Well, I can tell you what it is not. Baptism is not a means of salvation. Now, some people believe that. That's called baptismal regeneration, that you are born again through the act of water baptism. That is not, we, we, we reject that as uh, biblical. It's, salvation is by, it's by grace through faith. It is by believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Amen? It is solely that. But then baptism follows as an act of obedience to Jesus and to the Scriptures. You don't have to be baptized to be saved, but if you're saved, you have to be baptized. You know, in obedience to the command of Jesus and to the Scriptures. And so what exactly is baptism? Well, it's a couple of things, I would say. One, it's a public identification with Christ. It is a public profession of an inner reality. I have decided to follow Jesus. I, uh, I'm going all the way in. I'm not holding anything back. I'm going all the way under, if you will, and coming out again and following Jesus. And so this idea of public, publicly identifying, this is serious serious business. It's serious to Jesus, first off, but in many parts of the world now and throughout history, it's extremely serious. We have brothers and sisters in other parts of the world where really that's the, that's the point. The day that you get baptized is when you're marked. You're marked for death. 
And so it's, it can be even a traumatic experience, very, very frightening. People will do it in obedience, but they know that this is the point that they cross over and there is no returning from that. And so it's, a, it's an identification, a public identification with the Savior. And, uh, you know, Jesus uses that same language. He says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You have to be willing to die to yourself. That's what the cross represents. It's an instrument of, of death and torture even. And so Jesus says, You have to take up your cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Now listen to this. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and his fathers and of the holy angels. So baptism is essentially saying, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I'm not ashamed of his words. I want to be publicly identified with the Savior. Amen? It's a glorious thing, and I know that Jesus is so, so honored and glorified in it. What is baptism? It's identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me read this to you, and this is, uh, we'll kind of close this portion of the sermon right here. So Romans 6, verse 1, it says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. And so it, the waters... The, sorry, my wife gets on to me for calling it the waters of baptism. The water, the baptism water, it, uh, it represents the grave. It represents the grave. And the believer is going under, down into the grave. And then coming up again into the newness of life. It's a picture of having died with our Savior. And the Bible uses that kind of language. We've been crucified with Christ. We no longer live. It is He who lives in us. We have been buried with Him through death and baptism and risen again into the newness of life, and therefore we should live like it. Amen? We should live like it. And so that's, that's really what it is. It's saying that I have, the old, I have taken up my cross, I have confessed Christ, I, I bow the knee to Him as my Savior, and I've repented of my sins, and I want to walk with Him, I want to follow Him, I want to be identified with Him publicly. And, uh, and this display represents all of that, and it's something that we celebrate. It's something that is to be celebrated. God's doing an awesome work in His church, in His people. And, uh, you know, if you haven't been baptized, I would encourage you strongly to, uh, to, to be baptized. You don't have to today, but uh, sometime soon. And so for those who have said that they want to be baptized today in obedience to the Scriptures, we could not be more thrilled. We love you guys so much. Uh, we couldn't be more proud of you, Jackie and Patty. You're just uh, dear to our hearts. And it's been so awesome to see what God's been doing in your lives here in the church. And so we as the body of Christ just want to say we love you. And we're very proud and we praise God for the awesome work that he's doing in your lives and here. 
and uh, God is good. Amen? Amen. Father, we love you so much, and we honor you. You're holy, you're good, you're loving, and you're kind. You are a, a God who saves. You're mighty to save. And we thank you, Lord, for these uh, two dear sisters, for these two lives that have been surrendered to you, and they want to take that next step of obedience and be baptized publicly. I'm grateful for their boldness. I know it's a frightening thing to get up in front of the church. I do it every week, and I understand. And so, um, you know, I'm just grateful for their obedience, and I know that you're glorified in their obedience. And so, Father, thank you that this is ultimately about you. This is about what you have done, what you are doing. And so, we give you all the glory. May this worship, may this be an act of worship, and may it be a sweet-smelling aroma that rises to the heavens, Father. So, we praise you, God. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.